Dear Lord, I thank you for your love and your kindness. I thank you for your patience with us, Lord, as we learn to obey you, Father. Lord, I pray that we would obey your commands this week like Daniel did, Lord, and we would choose what you want us to do and not just what we want to do, Lord. Um, bless this day. Um, bless the sermon. Open our hearts and ears to what you want us to hear. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So this is going to be a little more teaching than preaching this morning. Last week we looked at the concept of a covenant. A covenant is a sacred compact between any two persons or nations that bind the parties to certain terms and the fulfillment of certain promises or obligations for the duration of the arrangement. Often there are accompanying rituals that strengthen the personal nature of these promises. And with Abraham, of course, circumcision was the ritual that God instituted to mark Israel out as separate and holy unto himself and expanded upon that as they grew into a nation. We saw that there are two types of covenants, the unconditional covenant, which is initiated and promised by one party to the other, although some conditions may be implied, and we saw that in one of the covenants. And why are we looking at covenants? Because we saw last week that as we look at the person of Daniel, this great giant of the faith, we saw that he was also human, that he was in great anguish. We saw all the ways he was physically wearied by the prophecies he received. We saw that his strength went out of him, his breath went out of him. And we looked at the fact that the reason he was in such turmoil is that he had received all these prophecies about the Gentile nations. But in chapter 9, he's wondering, God, what about all your promises and your covenants to us, the people of Israel? Unconditional uh, divine covenants, God establishes an unconditional compact with man, obligating himself in grace by the formula, I will, to bring to pass of himself definite blessings to the coveted ones. These might be further affirmed with the swearing of an oath. Or it could be conditional, a proposal of God wherein he promises in a conditional or mutual compact with man by the contingent formula, if you will, to grant special blessings to man, provided he fulfills, certain perf fulfills perfectly certain conditions and to execute definite punishment in case of failure. And we saw that's really the context of what's going on in the book of Daniel. There, through the prophet of Jeremiah and, and other prophets, there is a prophecy coming forward that, that God's not happy with the nation. They have not kept his covenant, and so <clears throat> they will be going into captivity. Now, we looked at five divine covenants, some conditional, some unconditional. The first one, who remembers? What's A stand for? Which covenant? Abrahamic covenant. Very good. Genesis chapter 12. Um, we saw that the promise was expanded in chapters 15, chapter 17. And God bound himself by his own name, that he would bring to pass, he would make Abraham a man who had no heir who in his old age, he and his wife had no, no heir, no child, but God promised through him he would make a great nation and that he would bless all the peoples to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> then we saw what was M, Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional covenant. We're told to obey, and God says there's blessings in the obedience. But when we disobey, God laid out lots of very, specific impactful judgments and punishments that would come on Israel through their disobedience. We saw it didn't even take long for those 
Ten Commandments to come down, and already they were breaking them. So um, there was tough times and tough punishments, even beginning God teaching them, taking them by the hand in the wilderness and teaching them that he meant business, that he was a holy God, and he had called them to be a holy nation. P is what? Thank you. Boy, that was resounding. I got one answer there. The, the, the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 30, but it, you can back it up to chapters 28 to 30. And this is conditional in the sense that, um, it's unconditional in the sense that God promises it will happen. In chapter 30, he says, there is a time coming. It has not happened yet. That Israel will be gathered back in the land. But in the meantime, over the course of history, since that second generation that went into the wilderness, the children who saw all their parents die because of their lack of faith and their unwillingness to take the land and the land of promise and, and uh, conquer it and make it their own and live in it, that generation saw all their family members that were their elders die. And in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, they have the opportunity to do different but the same expectations are upon them. Look, if you will honor me, if you will keep my commandments, if you obey me, if you will keep my sacrificial system and keep yourself holy from the other nations and wipe them out, then I'll give you great, overwhelming blessing. You'll live in the land, your flocks, your fields, they will produce in abundance. But God also very specifically said, if you disobey he predicted that you will be taken over by an ungodly, a wicked people, and they will take you into captivity. We are now fast forward in the history of Israel to that point. We are on the doorstep of God fulfilling that promise of punishment and taking them out of the land. What's D? Davidic. God was the king of Israel going into the land. But he predicted that the people would become dissatisfied with that, that they would want their own king. They would want somebody human on a throne to kind of feel like they were equal with the rest of the nations instead of realizing they were already superior by having the invisible holy God as their king. And he predicted it would happen. He gave a concession that they would be able to do that. And Saul was not a king after God's heart. He had no heart for God, really. But in his place, God had a choice young man named David. He raised him up. He made him a leader, basically the model king for the rest of the kings. They were all eventually compared to him in some way, either by their lack of measuring up and doing wickedly or by having a heart to follow after God. And David received the promise, not that he would be able to build a beautiful temple, but that he would have an heir eternally. And we saw that Jesus not only has the right by blood, but also the legal right because both Joseph and Mary are descendants directly from King David. And Jesus will one day on this earth rule and reign, first for a thousand years and then extensively beyond that. God will keep his promise. And then we finally saw Jeremiah 31, what kind of covenant? The new covenant. The new covenant was was Jeremiah in the midst of all this, this anguish and these heavy prophecies of, of captivity, of judgment, saying, 
There is going to come a time where God promises, he says, I will take Israel by the hand and I will take away their stony heart and I will put a heart of flesh in them. And no one will teach each one to his neighbor know the Lord because everyone from the greatest to the least will know the Lord. That is fulfilled in the new covenant where Jesus raised the cup that evening with his disciples and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. And the, the saving, the death, the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of that new covenant. And we have been, Romans 9 to 11 says, we have been like a wild branch grafted into the vine. And we are now the recipients, those of us Gentiles, to be part of that blessing. But it hasn't yet happened for the nation of Israel as a whole. And whatever we think might have started in 1948 with the, the nationality, the, the nation of Israel as we have it today, it is far, far from what it one day will be. Not only in the land, fully possessing all of it, according to the Palestinian covenant, but spiritually connected to Jesus Christ, the one whom their forefathers rejected and said, give us Barabbas instead. They will one day, that remnant will be gathered and will believe. And they will be embraced by their Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at the events, the history. I hope, don't glaze over, despite what Miss Shirley says. We're going to make history exciting today. We're going to get into it. And we're going to try to help you see how pivotal the times right before and preceding Daniel's life were. How critical it was that there be this last burst of revival in the nation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask this morning that you would help your word in the history of how you have worked in the world to, to thrill us, to help us to stand back in awe of your sovereign care and how you prepare little small people in unknown places and you raise them up to, to places of influence and position by your grace for your purposes and how at the same time father you take down the mighty and you lay them low how you orchestrate the lives the lives of people their deaths their successors all moving your plan forward as you would prescribe and we pray these things in christ's name amen turn to first kings chapter 22 there was a revival from a young man who was very much like Daniel. We'll go back to that in a second. And in 1 Kings chapter 22, we see that, who's eight years old? Hey kids, who's eight years old? Somebody tell me if anybody's eight years old. Almost eight years old. Okay. Blaze. All right. How would you like to be king? Josiah, chapter 22, verse 1, was eight years old when he became king. Amazing. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And verse 2, notice what is said about him. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. And now it came about in the 18th year, so he would be how old? Math. 18 years, how old? Who's 26 here? Anybody 26, close to 26? 25? No, no, Dave, we know. Uh, so 26 years old, he's reigned 18 years, and notice what happens. He sent 
Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered for the people. And let it be delivered in the hand of the workmen, and have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let it give it to the workmen who are in the house to repair the damages to the house. What happened to the temple? Well, basically, the temple had been turned to a house of idolatry, not by Josiah, but by his father, Ammon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, very, very wicked kings of Judah. And somehow, God preserved this young man to be completely different than his lineage. And basically, we're going to sum up here, but Hilkiah, he goes, and in the midst of them repairing the temple, somebody digs in and they find some of the furniture that had been hidden away because the idols had been erected in place of, of God's furniture to, to be worshipped by. And that scroll should have been in, inside the Ark of the Covenant. Somebody finds the scroll and they bring it to Hilkiah and they read it for the first time in probably a hundred years. Can you imagine that? And notice he comes to the king and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king, and it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and all these other guys, go inquire of the Lord for me, verse 13, and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so there's a prophetess, Huldah, verse 14. She comes and she gives word to Josiah. In verse 16, 17, 18, she basically says, you people broke the covenant. She's announcing this to Josiah. But she says through the word of the Lord coming to Josiah, verse 19, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they shall become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. Truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. There's great repentance. In chapter 23, there is this great revival. The word is laid out before the people. They're called to repent. And notice in verse 2, the king went out up to the house of the Lord. And all the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, the prophets, all the people, behold, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words, the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And notice, all the people entered into the covenant. Tremendous revival. What happens in the next part of the book, the next part of that chapter, there's a cleansing. Josiah says, we're getting rid of all this stuff. And he burns it. He grinds it to dust. They're images. They're Asherah, verse 6. And notice that these things have been around a while. It goes back to, there were altars, verse 12, that were on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made. And the altars which Manasseh had made in the courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke them down and he smashed them and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And the high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for the Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled, he broke them in pieces. 
his predecessors had just been accumulating idols for years and years and years, decades and even centuries. This is important to understand because this was the plague to the heart of the nation of Israel and to the kings that followed after them. And, and these names change, but it's all Satan's plan. It's all Satan's demonic doctrine. It's all Satan's just rework the same thing, just change the names. But Baal was associated with the sun. He was a false god. And you, you can read all through Kings and Chronicles and see Baal pop up all the time. He was associated with Ashtoreth, who was the goddess of the moon. She was also the goddess of fertility, as they looked at the cycles of the moon and they thought, well, you know, this corresponds to other things. And involved in all that was um, Asherah, which were the images that were carved into trees and into statues. And Israel was praying to these things, bowing down to these things, being influenced immorally by these things. You notice in... Um, in verse 7 of chapter 23, Josiah broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Can you imagine? No wonder God had to bring judgment. But you know what? The same root is coming down. It's passed through the New Testament. And we see that the goddess Diana was later... In First Corinthians, there, there were evil people that were working, that were, had worked their way into the early church in the first century, and they were still having problems with these things. There's nothing new under the sun. The noun idolatres occurs sometimes in the New Testament. For these occurrences come in the so-called vice list, where being an idolater is listed alongside being greedy or sexually immoral. Satan just reworks the same game plans. He puts new ornamentation, a new face on it, but he's constantly trying to trip us up with idolatry. And, and why is immorality, obviously immorality is involved with fertility cults, but why does Paul say greed? One of the things, if you read through those many passages that I gave you, and we'll see that over and over again, notice it says, you know, certainly that no immoral, impure person or covetous man, notice how they're connected together, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. They're connected. And if you read through these prophecies in Jeremiah, there's all of these prophecies where idolatry is mentioned in the book. We're going to look at a couple of them, but take the time because one of the things that happens when you go after false gods, your priorities get all screwed up big time. And God had a priority that Israel take care of the widow and the orphan and the poor. That they share out their wealth. But they ended up wasting it on their idols. And people went destitute. People were taken advantage of. The law was perverted. Justice was perverted. The weak didn't have a counselor to come to their defense. All these things issued out of this disobedience. And ruin the society. Doesn't sound anything like any nation we know, does it? Is it any wonder that America is the largest producer of internet pornography to the whole world? We are an idolatrous nation. Should we not be forewarned? 
God's serious about this. Turn to Jeremiah 11. Notice in Josiah's reign, eight years old, somewhere right about here, he's 26. Notice no prophetic voice here. These are prophets. We've got Huldah, we have Jeremiah, we have Habakkuk, uh, we have Nahum, Zephaniah. A wonderful flourishing of God's prophetic voice to the nation. Amazing, isn't it? God was giving the people a chance in his great patience, even giving them opportunities to, to come clean as a people. And we see all the people, there was this revival in the land. The law is raised up, the, the covenantal practices, the feast, and all those things are put back into place. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 11. We're going to see one of these prophecies and notice the patience of God here. And the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is to this day. What covenant was that? Palestinian, a land flowing with milk and honey. I promised this was, but there's some conditions. You got to keep, you got to keep the covenant. And he says, then I answered and said, amen, O Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant to do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently saying, listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of their evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do. And they did not. And the Lord said, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, have broken my covenant, which I made with their forefathers. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. For then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. So what happened? We had a revival, but then time goes by, and Jeremiah's voice is not being heard, and God is still speaking, and whatever Josiah may be doing in the public, and making sure that's exact, people still go into their homes. Their hearts still aren't changed. And guess what? Maybe the parents that experience that revival are doing fine, but their kids aren't. And the next generation is raised up, and they don't follow after what's going on with their family. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 25. Notice the patience of God here. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. This is, this is toward the end. We're going to get to some of these kings here in a minute. The king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the 13th year of Josiah, 
the king of the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, and you have not listened. Jeremiah's word to the people. And the Lord has sent to you all servants and prophets again and again, and you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, from your evil deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given you, your forefathers, forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. Then the Lord says in verse 8, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and everlasting desolation. Moreover, I'll take from them the voice of joy, voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God says, time's up. Time's up. So what we have here is we have three deportation, and this is the first one, and that's in 605 B.C., which is right at the end, nearly, of Josiah's reign. Josiah goes out, he's, he's, doing, he's doing well, but he goes out to meet Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, and he's killed in battle. His one son, Jehoaz, put in his place, and uh, these guys, they didn't, they didn't pick up where their father left off. They picked up with the evil grandfather and great-grandfather, and they kept moving forward. You see, we have a deportation in 605. This is when Daniel and his friends are taken, 605 B.C., in that deportation, Nebuchadnezzar comes after some choice people, some people that he needs to begin to assimilate into his kingdom because he is planning to seize the place and take other people. But the Babylonians and the Medo Persians had this interesting strategy, and that is they took people from their own people to rule over those people who became their slaves or their, their conquered foes. And they tried to kind of ease the transition by having somebody familiar, somebody that spoke the language, actually be in responsibility over the people that they conquered and took captive. And so this is just part of Nebuchadnezzar being a very great military strategist. Then we have another deportation. That's in 597. During that deportation, the chief people, some of the men of valor, the priests, people of wealth, people of influence, people of education— 10,000 of them are taken away next time Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. And during that time, he, he says to Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, who was the installed kind of puppet leader, hey, just give me tribute, keep things, keep the peace. And these guys didn't learn a lesson. Jehoiachin rebels against them. And so he gets drawn off as, uh, I forget which prophet it was. He says he's going to have a hook. Nebuchadnezzar put a hook through his jaw and basically traipsed him out of the, out of the country in, in a show of power, basically, and took him off to, uh, to Babylon. In his place, Zedekiah or Mataniah was set up, and he was told the same thing. Just keep the peace here. You know, don't stir up your army. Don't decide to fight me. He didn't listen. Nebuchadnezzar comes back third time, 586 B.C., sends his general 
and they utterly destroy the place. They basically take that beautiful temple of Solomon down. They scavenge every good thing, every, all the, the gold and the inlays, and the, the rest of it they just put into a heap. They took some more people, the majority of people. They left basically the poor and the weak. And during this period of time, Jeremiah the prophet was killed. And even then, God's still, God's still speaking to people in exile. He's speaking through Ezekiel. He's speaking through Daniel. And he's leaving a voice out there. Now, how did Daniel end up being, how did his friends end up being in such a good place? Well, I think it's very largely due to the fact that we've already looked. And there's uh, the conquered area of Babylon, headquartered in what we now, in the area of what we call Baghdad in Iraq. He conquered Egypt, Pharaoh killed him. How did Daniel end up where he ended up? How did God preserve this man? Well, I think it's critical to understand that God had to have a man like Josiah have a revival to set up what the model of what should be and could be. Interestingly, if you figure this out, who's, who's around 15 here? Okay, you 15, 16-year-olds, you just got deported. You're with Daniel, his friends. Can you imagine being 15, 16 years of age? And when we get into the book of Daniel, we see the kind of character that he has. How did that happen? I think it goes back to what we, we talked about, the message I preached a month or so ago, where we talked about you have a family that's devout and pious, who keeps God's commandments, who, who teaches their children the fear of the Lord. But it doesn't hurt when the big guy at the top of the nation is laying that out for everybody as a model as well. Interestingly, if Daniel, which most people presume, is he, if he's around 15 in this first deportation, that means he's, he's born right around the same time that Josiah has the revival, where the scroll was discovered. Just coincidentally, right? Just coincidentally. You see, there is a power to godly leadership. There's a power that influences in a very pervasive way when somebody older, more powerful, in authority sets a good standard, a good model. And then it trickles down to the people. And we saw all the people initially repented and then Satan began to work his way into the hearts and those that maybe went along to get along, but really didn't have a change of heart. Or as we said, maybe that next generation that didn't want to follow along with their parents. And we see that Daniel was born just at the right time and just the right place and just the great purpose of God giving one last chance for mercy, for repentance to the nation through his servant Josiah. And it says that, that even in the way that Josiah went about repenting and, and clearing out these things, it said there is not anyone that followed his heart after God before him or since. That's, a, that's an incredible statement, isn't it? You see, it is important that we have people that influence us. It is important that as adults we we hold ourselves to high standard, live holy lives. I've been blessed by this gentleman. What you can't read there is that he's in hospice. His name's Rick Lineweber. He was my mentor when I was going to Bible college. I served under him in ministry. I served alongside of him as a fellow elder. He's been battling a, um, a very rare um, type of blood cancer for a number of years. And according to the, the Facebook post, 
and he may be in the presence of the Lord this morning. And I thank the Lord, even though uh, we had some, some difficult things in the way we separated, I thank the Lord that there is a person who was older that took me under the wing, guided me, discipled me, helped me learn how to study the Word of God, counseled me, and uh, as you can see, that's the real him, that smile, that's the charismatic person that I knew. And he uh, may be in the presence of the Lord right now, or very shortly will be. Thank God there was a Josiah. That's part of the backdrop to Daniel's life, isn't it? But we don't see that when we get to the book of Daniel. You've got to go back, you've got to dig through the history, you've got to see it. And see how God was orchestrating all that in his sovereign power and grace and mercy. Pray God would give our nation mercy. Because that's really what we should be asking for right now mercy. We are a wicked, idolatrous nation. We are a greedy people in many ways. And we need God to break our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would do your work in our lives. Help us to see that, that if we've let the Bible go so long that's gathered dust, if we haven't if we haven't thought about you, if we haven't, if we've gotten so busy with our, our jobs and our bank accounts and, and, and we've forgotten the kingdom of God and what you're doing in this world and how time is, it, it, it's, the sand is trickling down through the hourglass, not only for our country, but for this world. And we've got to be busy about your kingdom. We've got to be in a right place in our hearts to be used by you and to be effective. And so we pray this morning that, that you will give us whatever level of revival we need so that we might be most effective, that we might be choice servants like Daniel and his friends, that you will entrust with great stewardships to do your will in this world. And we ask these things in Christ's name.